This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. Today we will be reviewing Lower Decks Season 2 Episode 8, I Excretus. But before we get to that, we've got some news to get through, starting with a lot of pictures that have been popping up on social media from the set of Star Trek Picard Season 3 that uh, I'll just say it has Tony's head spinning. He's got lots of thoughts and ideas. Not spinning, but... Well, I'm just surprised that this stuff is being allowed because what's interesting is this wasn't allowed during season two. But for some reason, during the first month of filming of season three, Terry Metalis and other people, primarily him, the Kosha runner, has been tweeting out pictures from the set. Now, a lot of them are made clear that there's a new ship, that they, they built a set. It's some new ship, Starfleet ship. It's not the... La Serena. It's something new, but it's a 24th century ship, and it's just great to see a lot of this stuff. You know, it's classic. He points out the displays. They use um, the Mike Akutograms, what people used to call them, also known as L cars, <laughs> which last week I referred to as Le Cars. So we had a reader bring this up, and I just want to say I did check with Mike Akuta, and he said there is no canon pronunciation of L cars. But he uses L cars. Yeah, I mean, when you said it, I had never, I just always assumed it was L cars. And then I heard you say it and I thought, well, Tony's probably right. And then I also didn't want to derail us. But then when someone posted that they had the exact same experience I did, I was like, oh, what? Oh, <laughs> so I'm glad you checked. I've heard it both ways. I, you know, but if Mike says it's, he says L cars. I'm going with L cars. So it's L cars. Anyway, but we don't know what the ship is. There's a lot of speculation. Isn't it an Enterprise? Like, you know, maybe it's still the E or an F or a G Enterprise. Right. right. I seriously doubt it. Some people think it might be Riker's ship, which we never really saw that stuff. But I don't think so. I think it's something new. There's a lot of speculation. It's a Stargazer. It certainly wouldn't be the original Stargazer. Right, because there was like basically nothing left of that ship. I mean, maybe they completely refit it, but you know, it could be the Stargazer A. Who knows? Or sure. just something, something totally new. But it's exciting that we're seeing this stuff. I mean, even though we're not going to see season three until you know for two years, so uh, get excited, <laughs> but wait. Basically, right. restrain yourself. Yeah. We've seen some other fun stuff. There's like a Tellarite eating lunch, which is always, it's always, I always love seeing, you know, pictures of aliens doing stuff behind the scenes. Like when you see behind the scenes of Planet of the Apes movies and they'd all be smoking. (laughs) But there's a couple of very curious things he's tweeted. Metallus is a real Star Trek fan. He, He sent out a picture of... You remember in in a few Star Trek movies, I think the first time this was done was in Star Trek II... When someone comes on board, Kirk comes on board the ship and he, they have a whistle, right? Yeah. Of course, Nick Meyer is, likes old Navy movies and that's kind of an old naval tradition. Um, but so anyway, Metallus showed a boatswain's whistle and it's the exact one. I mean, not the exact one, but an exact duplicate of the one from Star Trek VI, which would be the 23rd century, but it's being held by someone in a... 24th century Starfleet uniform. So that's curious. That's got fans wondering what's going on with that. He also showed an image of a neon sign for this beer called Arcanus Lager, which 
was a sign on the wall of the bar that McCoy went to in Star Trek Three. Yeah, that made people go a little crazy. Although this is a clearly a different bar. No, but um, it's more about the time period, I think, than the bar. Right. Like, are they going back to the 20? Because we know time travel is a big deal in season two. So, you know, maybe the time travel never stops. I kind of hope it does stop and they come back to the, you know, the year 2400 or whatever at the end of season two and just stick with that in season three. I've seen some speculation that, I mean, maybe it's just people sort of hoping because they, if they didn't love season one, but speculating that we're going to find out that season one was the alternate timeline. I've seen a lot of people talking about that. That's certainly like a a weird retcon. (laughs) I don't think it's a good move as a TV producer. (laughs) No, no, that's, that's, you know, that's like, it was all a dream. I was going to say. (laughs) It's, Terry's not going to do that to Michael Chabon to say, oh, you know what? Your whole season, it never happened. Yeah, I don't think so either. It's just uncool. and No, um, and it takes away the meaning and the impact. Yeah. For sure. No, yeah. I don't think that's... Now, Patrick Stewart got into the game because um, this week was the 34th anniversary of Star Trek The Next Generation premiere. Crazy. And so he sent out something on social media and it was a picture of him on this ship. He can't really see anything. He's like on a bench, you know, but you can tell it's, it's you know, it's some Starfleet thing. <laughs> and and uh, he's reading a script. Um, but what he said was, it's a good feeling to both look back on and extraordinary to look around as there I was preparing to spend another day on a starship. Well, and that was in response to something he was listening to, right? Where they talked about how it was the anniversary of Next Generation and played the music. The the key word in that was starship. Yep. So he is now back on a starship for season three. We don't know what that starship is, but he's got one. Yep. So that's that's enough. It's season three of Picard while we wait for season two, which is coming in February 2022. And other kind of Picard news. Peripheral Picard news. James McAvoy who has already played a younger version of a Patrick Stewart character in the X-Men movies, um, is a huge Star Trek fan. And he's out there saying he is still hoping that he will get to be on Star Trek and would love to play young Picard, although he worries that he's too old for it. (laughs) But he's a big Star Trek fan for real. Like they did their, he and his friends did their own Star Trek spoof um, on mobile phones during lockdown time, just because they wanted something to do. So it's kind of, you know, it's an interesting idea, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was asked an open-ended question, you know, could you be in any other franchise? And he was very clear, Star Trek. I want to be on Star Trek. Um, I think this whole angle of him saying, I want to play young Picard is a little bit of a red hair. He just wants to be on Star Trek. He just happens to have played a young Patrick Stewart. Although his point is well made. He's 42 now. Patrick Stewart was 47 when he uh, shot Encounter at Farpoint. Although technically Picard was 59 at that point. So playing a young Picard, like let's say they did a show on the Stargazer. I would think they'd want an actor in his 30s. But the idea of doing a show on the Stargazer, I think, is an an interesting concept. To do a show in that kind of lost era between the TOS movies and TNG when they're thinking about the next show. It's a tough one because... I mean, people did accept a new cast for original series, you know, when the JJ movies came out. 
but it's but Patrick Stewart's still playing him, so it's tricky to think of someone else being a different Picard. This would be post Star Trek Picard. I'm talking 2025. I know, but you know, and by that time, to be honest, James McAvoy will have aged himself out of the young Picard game. Yeah, um, he will. Although he he'll be just about the right age to play Picard if, say, Paramount Pictures wants to reboot the next generation, which I think is not impossible. That at some point we may see a total reboot, recasting. I don't know how you want to call it of Star Trek The Next Generation with a new Picard, a new Troy, and the whole gang. Yeah, I mean, I'm so tired of reboots that I would rather not. I mean, I I agree that, yes, it could. I could totally see it happening. But I do feel kind of like, geez, there's got to be something fresh to do. If you think about every Marvel movie, every Marvel movie is is based on a, an established character. They're just new because they're taking them from the comics to the screen, right? But Right, but they're not remaking existing i don't know no but they're they're drawing on an established character and the nostalgia for that i mean it is very difficult to go into a franchise and create an entirely new set of characters and do those in a feature film you can do that in a television show doing that in a feature film is difficult for a franchise movie franchise movies tend to have familiar characters it's just the way it is and so we still don't know what they're planning for the 2023 film, but no one's tried this for a Star Trek movie yet to say we're going to establish, you know, the, the, we know that Holly was going to do that. He was going to try for a new cast and, and create a whole new set of characters, but it's, it's a risk. I would be very open to a new next generation in the next decade sometime. I think you could do all sorts of stuff with that. I mean, I always try to enjoy all these things, but I, does that doesn't particularly grab me that's for sure all right should we move on to strange new worlds or you got more to say so let's talk about this new show coming on which is just chock full of familiar characters yes. you got your pot you got your pike you got your number one you got your mabengas i mean it's wall-to-wall familiar characters and everyone's excited about it right well so it's it's familiar characters that we didn't in the original we didn't see it we there was one captain pike episode there was one number one episode there were two Mabenga episodes. I mean, the big the concerns I have on that show are the the Chapel and Uhura issues. Although I'm glad that they will those characters will get to do more than they ever did before, which is good. But that's you know too much of that is exactly where I start to go. Ah, okay, I hope it works out. <laughs> so, but See, you, I, I mean, I I like familiar characters in new situations. That's my sweet spot. So I, I want to see a new spin on characters I know doing something entirely new and different, which is kind of what I got into with my interview with Anson Mount, which is now on the site. It's a Star Trek Day interview. He's way into the new look of the show. Um, and he loves the, you know, he says that it, they're, they're marrying their traditional look and with the mid-century modern aesthetic. So he's way into it. And he talked a lot about the episodic nature, which we've talked a lot about. And let's just roll a clip of him talking about that. We wanted our our show to be more or less a throwback in every way we could. And that started with making room for the big idea of the week, which meant more of an episodic structure. 
and so every every episode is is, is a distinct sto- story. Not that the characters don't grow or change; that definitely happens. But um, the star of the show is is the ship and the big idea of the week. I like to think of it as a two-hander that way. So this is obviously echoing some of what we'd already heard from Akiva Goldsman in your other interview, but it is nice to hear it reinforced um, from someone who's there every day playing the role. Um, and and, and I, had his shot 10 episodes. So yeah. this is, I asked him this in context of now that you've done it, you know, did you do what you say you were going to do? Right. And he's saying yes. Which is great. So I love that he's that the ship is the star of the show and the big idea of the week is the star of the show. To me, that says, you know, we're going in a very interesting direction. I'm still excited about this one. Even though it's it's almost a negative word, but I like the word throwback. I think fans will like that because it yeah. is it, the, sh- the show's a throwback in every way. Right. And that, you know what, when you got five shows going, you could have one that's a throwback. You should have one that's a throwback. Although Lower Decks and we're certainly this week's episode is th- is kind of a throwback. Yes, a it's throwback, throwback central. <laughs> yeah, throwback city. <laughs> well, so just to, to contrast that, one of the things I really liked that he talked about in your interview was the AR wall because he sounds so excited about it. And I love the way that he describes it. Right. So because he, he talks about how it's an entire soundstage where the walls are all high def screens and there's a ceiling projection. So all the work is done ahead of time and he gets there and it looks like this alien world, which is such an exciting thing. It's funny. I went to the the immersive inter- Van Gogh thing exhibit that's been touring the country. And I was like, and that's probably the closest thing I've been in to the to an uh, to an AR wall. And I could have sp- I could have sat there all day. If I lived across the street, I'd go there every night. <laughs> yeah. So. When I brought it up, he was super excited about it. He said, it's like the most amazing thing he's ever done, you know, uh, production wise. Yeah. And so I think it really helps the actors to be. Oh yeah. Um, especially compared to, you know, the kind of lifeless performances you get when you're, you're basically in a giant green room with tennis balls i was just um, gonna say here's a tennis ball for you to look at yeah I'm, I'm still super excited about strange new worlds and all of those familiar characters but i i did press him on this thing of you know new is in the name so are we going to be seeing something new every week new aliens every week because he said it's something you know it's episodic and a big idea of the week and he he demurred. Yeah, he got a little cagey. So yeah. which which is we know, you know. I know I'm not the, saying I, that tells me the answer. I think <laughs> we're going to be seeing things we've seen before. Yes, we are. I, I my here's my hope. It's at least fifty fifty. <laughs> you know, now yeah. are we in the bargaining phase now? <laughs> like, we are fully yeah. in the bargaining phase. <laughs> Well, here's so that we should actually start doing bingo cards or betting or something and do like tribbles and like all these other things that we think are going to pop up. Just a a little bit of prodigy. It's not news, but they're ramping up their promotion for the show. Uh, It's coming out in exactly a month. It's on the 28th of October. So they released a series of character posters and you should just go look at them if you haven't seen them already because you can see the characters in much better detail. Yeah, they're big, beautiful images. Definitely. And elements of the ship too. There's nothing really new in them except that they, 
I think the fact that Gwyn is featured with this sword thing that we've seen her, I think that's going to be an important part of her character. She has some kind of weird energy sword. It looks old fashioned, but futuristic at the same time. Another thing I think when they first showed off the characters, we all were kind of thinking that the blob creature was going to be kind of a major character, kind of like the Seth Rogen character in the monsters versus alien movies. It might be something (laughs) like that, but more and more it's clear that Murph is going to be funny and cool, but is kind of just a pet in a sense to rock talk the giant, um, the giant cute little girl. (laughs) Well, cause also Murph doesn't talk in a way that the rest of us can understand. So that would definitely create some limitations character wise. You've mentioned Murph is kind of like R2D2 and then makes these squeaks and squeals and stuff like what I'm curious about. Can anyone understand what Murph's saying? Because again, on Star Wars, R2D2 makes these sounds, but then certain people can understand what he's saying. Right. Um, So can Rock Talk understand Murph's squeaks and squeals? Um, or are they just squeaks and squeals? We don't know. I'm going to guess yes. <laughs> so while you were on the red carpet on Star Trek Day, which feels like a long time ago, but wasn't, um, you also talked to Wilson Cruz, who was there with Blue Del Barrio and Ian Alexander, all from Discovery. So uh, what were the highlights of that interview for you? It was nice to meet Blue and Ian because I hadn't met them before. Unfortunately, it was all very short. It was literally the last interview of the day. But he did talk about Culber doing more doctoring this season and saying that Culber is, quote, on another level this season, which I think I took to be more doctoring. And he also talked about Culber balancing all sorts of different things about being doing more doctoring, being more of a counselor, but also taking care of these two kids is maybe the wrong word, but. I think that's the word he uses. I think he calls them kids a lot. Yeah. Him and Anthony Rapper, well into their middle age and they're both teenagers. So they are kids from their point of view. Yeah. This kind of found family is going to be a big deal. He did talk a bit more about how Culber's going to be responsible to make Gray not a ghost anymore essentially to be seen and what he said was we find out uh just how dynamic and brilliant he is meaning gray so gray will have agency essentially and show that gray is a brilliant person um although i tried to find out if gray has a job on board and they got all you know scared if you <laughs> yes <laughs> Suddenly, it's as if Michelle Paradise was standing behind them. I mean, one of the other things Wilson Cruz said that I liked was he talked about how there will be lots of domestic loveliness between Culber and Stamets. And the idea that they are that they have this family and that he's trying to deal with work and family is such a that story is almost always a woman's story. And it's very nice to see it be a man's story. I agree. Even though we know that Stamets is going to have a lot to do because he's kind of in charge of figuring out how to solve the anomaly, which Anthony talked about us, talked to us in his interview with us earlier in the year. And Blue, I did briefly talk to Blue and Blue pointed out that we're going to be seeing more independence from Adira this year. Even though the family's a bigger deal, I think Blue, or not Blue, but Adira is going to show that they 
are more than just part of this family, uh, I guess because they're now part of Starfleet, which we saw at the end of season three. Right. Although I assume they're probably still working for Stamets and we'll be seeing all all sorts of, you know, bickering science arguments between the pair of them. (laughs) Let's hope. So that's okay. We're going to have a little bit of lower decks discussion before we get into the episode, but I want to switch back to pick up on something we talked about recently, which is that Paramount Pictures has gone through a management change. And I mentioned that you predicted this one. You knew this was going to happen. Well, it, it, because it's traditional, which is when yeah. when you, when someone gets pushed out, their people end up getting pushed out too, or at least leaving because there's no fun to be there anymore. So Emma Watts, who is the head of motion pictures for Paramounts, has followed the CEO of Paramount out the door. Now, the reason why Emma Watts is important is because last year, Emma Watts put that Noah Hawley movie on hold she and she went off to develop two new star trek movies including the 2023 movie with jj and with matt shackman and the uh, writer from captain marvel so the question is what does this shake up mean because now that she's gone because when she came in she shook up the whole star trek plan Right. But I think that her leaving isn't necessarily going to throw a wrench into things because her two top lieutenants have basically taken over. They were essentially working on these projects already. And there's no reason to believe that they have some different vision. And the new head of the studio mentioned in his, you know, saying goodbye to Emma memo to staff. He mentioned the Star Trek movie in development as kind of one of her highlights that she has, you know, brought Star Trek, you know, back essentially so that and put it on the schedule. So I still think the 2020 because I've said, you know, these movies are Jenga towers and this is a this is a moment where someone can pull a pin out. And I feel like we've gone through the management shakeup and no one's pulled out a pin. Yeah, I think just just mentioning it is a good sign. Hearing them say those words is a good sign. Yeah. I still feel that it's probably going to have its budget trimmed because that's kind of the way things are going. But that may not have the same kind of ripple effect it had with the Chris Hemsworth movie where when they trimmed the budget, the movie basically fell apart because the contracts they had already established. Yeah, I don't know where this is going to go, but I do feel reassured at least that they're still it's still on the table. Now, there's a little inside baseball thing, but it could impact everything, everything in Hollywood, <laughs> which is one of the major Hollywood unions. The IATSE is about to vote for a strike. In fact, the day this podcast comes out is the day of the strike vote. And the, the, this is a, a union that has all sorts of people on it. A lot of what they describe as below the line people. Right. So it's like everyone outside of producers, directors, writers, and cast. So it's all the production people. Location managers and scripts and supervisors, all sorts of people. But it does include like editors are in here, cinematographers. Yeah. If these people don't show up, you don't have a production. If this strike vote goes, production's over. And I think a lot of post-production's also over. Yeah. I think things come to a halt. Star Trek Picard season three would definitely shut down. Yep. Post-production on Discovery Season 4 and Picard Season 2, which are kind of the next two things in line, could also be heavily. We don't know yet, but 
those could be impacted as well. Yeah, although I'm guessing with Discovery, they have enough because they have enough of it probably done. And look, the issues they're fighting for are pretty reasonable issues. I mean, the the work days are long. A lot of times companies opt to take instead of giving there's like a mandated meal break, but you can pay a penalty and then the crew kind of has to eat while they work, like eat standing up. Um, and a lot of companies just pay that because they want to keep going. And then the downtime between shoot days is a really big issue because people barely have time to get home and go to sleep before they're supposed to get up and go back. So there's a lot of quality of life issues here. And I totally get why it's so important. And, you know, I, I've worked in TV production a lot and I've seen a lot of this stuff happen. Anyway, by next week, we'll know if this is happening. My family comes from union stock, so I have to support them. <laughs> yeah. We got some Orville news for the first time in a long time, which is that we finally have a release date for season three, which is March 10th, 2022. And they're going to, it'll be on Hulu. They've moved over to Hulu and it will be weekly. So a new episode every Thursday. So it's going to be a 10 episode season, but every episode is longer than they used to be because they're now on Hulu. They're calling this New Horizons. It's still season three, but they're kind of rebranding the show as the Orville colon New Horizons because it's, <laughs> you know, it's on Hulu. And in a sense, it's a new show because it'll have been three years since season two wrapped up when this show comes back, which is a long time between it's a seasons. Long time. It's a long time. And they have new sets. They have all kinds of new stuff. Yeah, the, the teaser trailer is not much of a teaser trailer. It basically It was just... clever, though. I thought it was clever of them to do it that way, given that they weren't ready to show actual scenes. It's just VO with this one shot. <laughs> yeah, so you can see that they've changed the bridge set. They got rid of the carpet. <laughs> so that that's one element of Star Trek The Next Generation they've decided to let go. You know, and it, the sets you know, look nicer, a little updated, but... I'm sure they've got footage they could, I guess they just feel it's a little too early to start showing it because, it, you know, March is still a bit of a ways. Yeah. So we'll have more on that when we get closer to March, but at least we know it's coming. Yeah, everybody's been asking for a while and I think not announcing the date made it easier for people to forget about it. Now, you interviewed a Star Trek Voyager writer. I did. I talked to Lisa Klink. That was my first writer interview, which was very exciting for me. She was great. We talked for a long time. So her background, she started as a Writers Guild intern on Deep Space Nine, and she did write one episode, Hippocratic Oath. And then she got offered a staff job at Voyager. So she was on Voyager for seasons two, three, and four. And when Jerry Taylor left, she also left. I mean, Jerry Taylor stepped, she didn't leave the show. She stepped back. Um, into a consultant role, and that's when Lisa left. But she was there when Seven was introduced. She wrote a whole bunch of episodes. She had a lot of really interesting things to say, I thought. I always like people who could take us in the room, and so she was very good with some kind of fly-on-the-wall stuff. I, I always find the Voyager writer's room fascinating because there were some amazing people in that room. I always feel like that room was... Because everyone talks about how great the DS9 room was, and it was. But there were some great people in the Voyager room as well, a lot of whom have gone on to become show creators like Rene Escavera and... I mean, Brandon Braga, Joe Minoski, like all these people. And Brian Fuller came on later. I mean, it's funny. I just listened to him talking. His experience was pretty different from hers. 
I got the impression. Um, they worked together a little bit and they're friends. Like she kept mentioning him and that she'd be talking to him. Um, but he had, I felt like she was very, very positive about everything. And she said like, she never had any issues being a woman and the vibe was great. And everybody listened to everything you said. And then I just heard him on the um, Patreon only part of the Delta Flyers podcast. And he was talking about basically being made very aware that everybody knew he was gay and sort of said things about it in a way that was to remind him that they knew. And he didn't mean that in a positive sense. It was an interesting comparison. The sense I get is that unlike the DS9 writers room, when, when you hear stories out of that room, it, it was very supportive and people loved it. And it was a, it was this meeting of the great minds. Although Lisa didn't really get into this, but a lot of stories I hear out of the, Voyager writers room are about conflict, especially with Rick and frustration and, you know, moments of amazingness. So it just feels different. And I think it's because there was more pressure on the show because but it was supposed to be the flagship show. But it's interesting because that's the opposite of what she said, because her whole description was the room was really open. You could make any suggestion. People would listen to you no matter who you were. You could learn. And it was a and it was a civilized room and just a great experience. She said everyone was good to each other and supportive. So and Jerry was very much the leader of that room. I think it got more tense as they got to season, later seasons. Perhaps. Yeah, that's what I think, too. Obviously, the pressure was on. Um and different people, you know, Michael Piller had left and then Jerry Taylor had stepped back. So it was very different. But Lisa's experience was very positive. She loved it there. And so she said it spoiled her for other jobs, which is. I like how she backed up what Jerry said during her Voyager panel uh, about how Jerry was very much like Janeway. Yeah. Her leadership style in the room was like Janeway's leadership style on the bridge. Yeah. And I asked, I said, and could you also go to her for emotional issues? You know, because Janeway was always the person you could go to if you were upset about something. Um, and she said, absolutely. So it's funny. I thought she was very diplomatic when you started getting into seven and you brought up the <laughs> outfit and she used the phrase, it was unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I tried. <laughs> I tried to get some more out of her because I was just imagining like if I was working there and then they said, oh, we have this new character. And then they showed the picture and be like, what is happening? I mean, that was before we knew. I mean, I guess she, I mean, she basically said when she heard about Seven, they had already talked about like the character as an ex-Borg. And that was the focus. They didn't say, oh, hottie in a silver cat suit. So, and to me, there's no question the minute Seven got there, she was a fantastic character. But all that marketing, I would have been distressed if I was working on the show and saw that stuff going around. Lisa said she liked writing for Seven. Yeah. So, and that it was a good character, which it was. But Oh, uh, it, great. I mean, a great character. And right out of the gate, a great character. And you did get her to talk about how basically some characters on the show specifically well, I, I, it's interesting how she pointed out that, that the human characters, Tom, Harry, and Chakotay, were essentially, especially as the show got on, just ignored is, is one. They weren't as fun to write for. And, you know, Brian Fuller told Garrett and Robbie the same thing that he and he's talked about it before. But he said, you know, I think we could have made more of an effort to try to. And he talked about a specific stories where he'd put Tom into something and then they took him out and made it Tuvok. <laughs> um, 
So, but she talked about that too and said, yeah, we could have served them better. We could have done better, but you know, they're writers and they're going to look for the characters that give them that are just sort of more interesting off the bat. And when you have all these aliens, they're going to be more interesting. So it's worth checking out the interview. She talks a bit about DS9 and her new website. Yeah, she's writing some great stuff for this website, including she has all her outlines and story notes and things like that from her Deep Space Nine episode. So I think she's going to dig into at some point, do an article on the whole process of watching that episode become what it was. There's a little bit of news on another 90s. This is a big week for 90s shows coming back. Um, Law and Order's coming back. Babylon 5's coming back. And Tech War, William Shatner's <laughs> Tech War is coming back. As an animated series. Yes. I mean, William Shatner is 90 years old and <laughs> he's still cutting deals and doing stuff. You know, he's got a new album out. It's just crazy. Like, he just won't <laughs> stop. It's like you're 90. Please. Good for him. That's what keeps him going. That's all the stuff that keeps him going. If he stops, I'm sure he feels like if he stops, that'll be it. He'll wither away. The show doesn't have a network yet. This is in development, so who knows if this will ever happen. We don't know what Shatner's role will be. You know, if you don't remember what Tech War is, it was a generic 90s syndicated. I'm sorry, if you were a huge fan of Tech War, the TV show version, at least, was kind of a low-budget 90s sci-fi when there was a lot of syndicated sci-fi shows in the 90s. ran for a couple seasons, and... uh I wasn't a huge fan, so but I'm hoping that they do something cool. That they have some cool ideas with this. It's going to be mixed reality, animated shows. Going to be audience participation. I'm not sure, but it sounds like they've got some crazy ideas. So I'm open to it, especially yeah. if Shatner's voicing. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. I never watched the the show, but when I was looking up some information on it, I saw that Nicole DeBoer was in an episode. Yeah, there were some notable characters for sure and actors involved in the show. Well, they must have filmed in Toronto because I saw a lot of my, uh, I don't know if anybody else watched this show, but a lot of my Earth Final Conflict actors popped up on there too. It's definitely shot in Canada for sure. There you go. I think it was partially funded by CTV. I'm not sure. That makes sense. Yeah. There's some other Shatner news (laughs) that we're not sure is news, but we, you know, it was reported that. Uh, TMZ, who's you know, kind of a gossip site, reported that kind Shatner's, of <laughs> that Shatner is going to go into space on the next Blue Origin, which is the Jeff Bezos space company rocket. That's coming up in mid October. Actually, we originally didn't report this out, but we kind of threw it into the Shatner article to say, well, you know, maybe this is happening too. But we're you know, we've tried to confirm it. We haven't been able to either confirm it or debunk it, which makes us kind of feel like it's there's at least a kernel of truth here. There's supposedly some documentary that would be involved because, uh, of course, if Shatner's doing this, it's going to be more than just him going into space. It's going to be part of some, you know, project that he's working on. Of course it is. <laughs> I think and I, I think that he would have denied it if it wasn't happening. So I think it is the plan. Whether yeah, they'll I mean, let him do he, it, I don't know, but it's the plan. Going into space is not easy. I mean, there's a lot of G-forces as you go up there. I just hope he stays safe. <laughs> Stay safe, Phil Shatner. Let's do a couple quick merchandise updates before we get to Lower Decks. Uh, you did a review of a new 
somehow a new book about Star Trek, the original series after 55 <laughs> years. Which you'd think you couldn't do anymore, but you can. So um, <laughs> Ian Spelling and Ben Robinson wrote this book. And, the, the th you know, I a lot of people in their reviews, they're just like, oh, and there's this story about Muhammad Ali that I never heard before. And to me, I mean, that was it was a good story that he came looking for Michelle Nichols and she wasn't there that day. So it was sort of half of a good story. But to me, what I thought was great about the book was the way that they really combined brand new in-depth interviews that they did with everybody they could find. All the documentation they've been able to dig up because these guys have both been covering Star Trek for decades, literally. And, um, and old interviews that maybe haven't been resurfaced that much lately and just sort of wove it together really well to make you really feel like you were behind the scenes of the show and you got a different view of it. And I mean, it is, yeah, you know, Inside Star Trek did that. There are other books that do that. But this one, with its combination of old and new, woven together so well, I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. And the pictures, like the sketches, the production sketches are fantastic. So if you are a fan, if you grew up reading the making of Star Trek and you love those books, this is this is a hundred percent one to add. Yeah, I, I have a copy and I haven't read it cover to cover as you have, which I don't think these books really meant to do. I've dipped in and out, especially I like the design stuff. The design stuff is great. It's just such a highlight of the book for me and and great interviews describing like, here's what I was asked to do and here's what I did. Worth checking out. Uh, we got a review on the site. We also have a chapter excerpt. Let's switch to Lower Decks. I interviewed Carl Tart, Kayshawn. Kayshawn, his eyes open. He didn't break any news. He didn't really know anything about Star Trek before he started. I mean, he'd seen it, obviously. But he, he said that he really studied the Darmok episode over and over again. I liked what he said about trying to get the gravitas of Paul Winfield while still adding something light. So he took it very seriously. I mean, this guy's a, you know, big time in his world of uh, improv comedy, you know, but he's not, you know, but he sees this as important to get right. In fact, when I talked about like, you know, do you improv stuff? Because we know Tawny and the rest of them are doing improv and he, that's how he knows all these guys from their time doing improv together. But he said, no, I'm sticking to the script because I, I want to get it right. And he said, because I don't want all you guys, meaning us fans coming after him for getting something wrong. So even though he is having fun with it, he's taking he's taking it pretty seriously, which I thought was interesting. I thought so, too. And my favorite thing that he said in your interview is when you asked him if Kayshawn had any you know feelings about not being security chief anymore. Because Shax, he was replaced Shax. This was a question that came up in our review a week or two ago. So he's not the security chief. And he said, he might be a certain way about it. We might learn more about how he feels about it later. <laughs> that was a little cryptic. Since he's no longer chief security, it leaves him in this twilight, right? And we see that in this episode because this episode's about the senior officers and the lower deckers. And you actually can see Kayshawn, but he didn't fit into either group. He is in this kind of twilight. Yeah, he doesn't have any lines, but you can see that he's there. Because he didn't fit the narrative of the senior officers versus the lower deckers. Because he's kind of neither anymore, right? Right. He's a middle decker. <laughs> right. We need, a, we need a whole separate show about middle man, him and Stevens. 
and uh, all the other lieutenants. So let's so, talk yeah. about the episode. Yes. I excretist. What were what's your top level overall? It was designed to be a crowd pleaser, a fan pleaser, and it worked. Okay, you got me. I loved it. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, what's funny is because I remember when I interviewed Mike, he said we've got our most Star Trekiest episode coming up. I still think last week, ironically, was more Star Trek because it was kind of a traditional Star Trek story. This is Star Trekiest in that it's basically a Star Trek Greatest Hits episode. Yes. It reminded me a lot of Crisis Point, in fact, from last season. And I, I kind of feel like maybe they're going to do this once a year, right? They're going to do kind of just this super heavy homage kind of episode in a different way. Because if you think about Rick and Morty, right? So they did interd- interdimensional cable like once a season or something like that. So maybe this kind of homage kind of uh, episode is going to become a tradition like late in the season every year. My description as I was watching it and taking notes was I called it a fun romp through Star Trek's past. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty much what it was. I mean, the the part, but I also thought I, I mean, last week's episode honestly was my favorite of the season. Um, But this week's I really enjoyed. I loved that it was fast paced. I felt that it was really true to, our characters, not just who they were when they started, but who they've become. And Very I thought that, so. and I thought that it really reinforced the theme of the series in a different way from the way they've done it before. Yeah, and it was a great way, I think, to you know show the dynamics between the senior officers and the lower deckers, right? Because the whole thing was structured around this notion of a conflict between them. And I think the cold open, of course, was both very funny. Right. Where they they get abandoned on some kind of um, satellite or something. And that kind of set up the whole thing of how, you know, they get no respect. You know, the lower deck. What is this? You know, they said that they didn't. They didn't slide um, out the boots. (laughs) So they apparently didn't know they were out there. I don't know. It didn't make any sense. How do the boots tie into that? Because it's kind of a big deal to have you know, four people go on an EVA. Do they only know people are doing EVAs because of the boots? That just, I don't know. That didn't add up. That didn't quite add up, but it's still because it was a good joke. And so I forgave it because it made me laugh out loud. I mean, it's from, you know, one of the trailers and it made me laugh the first time I saw it and it made me laugh again. This was a bit experimental in that, you know, they kind of broke up the usual A, B story structure. I mean, do you see there being an A story and a B story? It seems to be. No, it was like the main story was the main story of the drills and all. And then there were a billion little B stories, which were all the things going on in the individual (laughs) hollow pods or whatever they were in. (laughs) Right. So it's kind of all A story with lots of tiny C stories. Yeah. Or like Boimler's story was like a B story. (laughs) Yeah. But it it fed into, but it at least was well woven into the main story beautifully woven in i thought and such a perfect way to show he is he is the best example in this episode i think of this is who he has always been and yet this is how he's grown at the same time maybe we can talk about how each of them had their own little journeys mariner kind of had the biggest journey because she did three kind of had uh, three different episodes that she had to do 
Right. But I think the most important thing for her in this episode was was Mariner and Freeman together and how they've their relationship is still, con, you know, contentious and it's better because ultimately they really team up in a big way. I mean, first they blow it by fighting and then they really team up in a big way. <laughs> yeah, there's a nice resolution because we start with the conflict between the two sides then roughly halfway through the episode after they go through their pod experiences both of them they they kind of have this epiphany even though it's the wrong epiphany and then they get to bond um which is kind of how you know the the the, the whole season started with them in this kind of forced partnership that that wasn't working for them and now right. we're finally seeing them find a way to work together by doing crazy things, you know? No. And one of the important parts of that is sort of one of my life's mottos, which is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And they were forced to put themselves in the other's shoes and see what it was like. And they learned a lot. And I just think that's something I try to do all the time. If I'm in conflict with someone is try to understand where they're coming from. And I felt like this was a great way to do it because it was funny and never a dull moment along the way. To, to get there, Mariner had to go through a little bit of her journey. And specifically, I think there's a little bit more of her being taken down a peg, in a sense. Like stomped on a horse, taken down a peg? <laughs> well, because she goes, you know, because she goes into her simulations. So everyone has to be, has to have their own little simulations. That's the whole premise of the show. And um, so it's the ultimate holodeck episode. Everyone gets their own personal holodeck. <laughs> She immediately jumps in thinking, I've got this, no problem. Mirror universe, no problem. And she immediately laughs just like she did in Crisis Point. So she has she uses her evil laugh and thinks that she's got this in the bag and she immediately fails because she wasn't doing it right, basically. Right. You know, later they said it was rigged and that is true, but she still was kind of screwing up and she did... I think learned that, uh, you know, maybe she doesn't have it all figured out. Yeah. She was overconfident and then got crushed. Well, she got crushed twice, right? The, the, the mirror universe, she got crushed. She got called out by. She got a called out in a very invasion of the body snatchers moment. Yeah, exactly. Very Donald <laughs> Sutherland. Yes. Evil Billups was great. I loved evil Billups. <laughs> then she goes into Spectre of the gun. Yep. Although it just looked like Spectre of the gun because of the red sky. And she immediately gets stopped by a horse. And we did learn that she spent a good amount of her childhood taking horse lessons, horse riding lessons. Well, two years, two and a half years. That's still more backstory on her. And apparently it didn't work. But I love when she said, horses love me. I'm a maverick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the third thing, I don't know if we could call this one her fault, but the, the naked time. I mean, what did you think of the whole <laughs> naked time thing? it was because when i saw it on the board naked like i know of course the naked time but it did read like naked time and then it turned out to be this <laughs> fabulous combination of both of them like she says everyone is very slick and sliding around like she's <laughs> very nervous about everything you could see like the doctor dr taana's little cat butt crack like, it was just, I thought it was hilarious. And they really, I love the way they remembered, like, what was painted on the doors in the original series episode, you know, sin yeah. repent and things like that. So I I just thought that was hilarious. And that she just, like, can't take it at all. Like, would rather yeah. be out the airlock than dealing with all the naked people. Right. At the end, she's like, put me back at the Western. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was fairly graphic, like the Boimler moment where they had to have a little black bar. But <laughs> okay, uh, so know, that so- made me like, like make a very loud sound <laughs> of laughter. Some, I guess, a guffaw because I just right. it was so funny. That shot of him doing it was so right. funny. So for myself, like, as both of us had a problem, we're, I, I'm going to bring them back up again. The masturbating <laughs> Mugato. Um, sorry, sorry, and. But again, like this was in a way just as graphic, if not more graphic. But for some reason, I don't know, just it worked here and it didn't work there. Well, to me, it's funny or not funny. And it was funny. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I it mean, was uh, extremely funny. The, <laughs> Steven, the Stevens and Ransom, because of course Stevens would be in love with Ransom. Right. <sighs> I mean, it was all great. It was all, it was all great. You know, but it also showed some clever writing because this later triggers her on the bridge when yeah. they do another simulation and it kind of causes that simulation to fail. So they, they, you know, it was extreme, but for a reason, cause it had to um, cause a little trauma for her. So the one thing I did really like about doing the, about the little mirror universe one was that I felt like when they had, it was like, I guess it was mirror Rutherford. I can't remember who else. And they were talking about how like, you know, they like to torture and then they get horny all the time and that gets them in the mood to torture more. And it's like the cycle that could take them through the day. And I liked a little bit of mockery of the mirror universe because I do sometimes feel like, like discovery, which I always enjoy, thinks it's cool. You know, like it's, I like the idea that it's ridiculous and that it's weird that everybody's horny all the time. (laughs) Oh, I, I think a lot of these, little vignettes were making funs not the right word, but we're definitely poking a little fun at yeah. some Star Trek tropes for sure. Uh, so specifically the Tendi one where Tendi is basically recreating the next generation episode yes. where um, Dr. Crusher has to decide whether, you know, what to deal with Worf who's broke his back and the Klingon who broke his back says, you know, I broke my back because I, I, he said, I, I broke my back picking up a peanut. <laughs> So you've got to kill me, which is ridiculous. Of course, that's ridiculous. The whole Klingon honor thing is overdone. And the fact that you, so the whole scenario is ridiculous. So I thought that was very good. I didn't, I don't know, the, the, the Rutherford redoing the Spock thing uh, from Star Trek Two did nothing for me. I, it just was like, I didn't see the point of that. Like, it wasn't well, the that only funny. thing I thought was the point of it was that he just blew up twice in two weeks. Yeah, but. Still, Which was exactly like, the thing that he told Tendy she'd better get used to, but <laughs> I don't know. You, you're, that was you're, you're, you're grasping for something interesting. I found it. I found it boring. It's like it's funny that he burnt his hand and then he kept burning his hand. I don't know. It just seems. I don't. Know. There was because it told you nothing about the character. Because the Tendy thing, you know, it revealed how she's both more competent now, and she. But she's just so obsessed with making people happy, like you know, almost to a fault. Right. Well, she's like, let's get ready to go to Stovacore. Like she gets so, okay. <laughs> and then she's like, no, no, I do want to kill you. Like she's trying. And then I thought it was a nice touch that the uh, the medics who came over had those red suit. They were just like in ethics in that Next Generation episode. They were yeah, dressed yeah. in those awesome red surgical suits. 
I mean, it, for sure, they're nailing all the visuals. Oh. The Rutherford thing was, you know, right out of Star Trek too. You know, they had the chamber there. And he didn't have gloves on. He was wearing the, the right suit. He was wearing Scotty's suit. It all looked right. It just, I don't know, wasn't funny. But the Boimler thing was definitely, I mean, it was the, the longest, obviously. But uh, yeah, all that Borg stuff um, for Boimler scenarios was just top A plus. A plus. The, look, the babies in the drawer. I loved seeing the babies in the drawer because they only did it that one time, I think. And then then the way he kept collecting them all. I liked them when he was firing at them and then his phaser stopped working. So he just threw it at them. Well, there was a Borg baby on Voyager. Remember they found. Oh, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then they never mentioned it again. Right. But yeah, because like people forget the whole thing about assimilation was introduced in first contact. Up until then, I guess the idea was that the Borg created babies and then started adding the cybernetic parts to them. Yeah, it was fun. And he kept on trying to collect more and more babies and to get, because what I liked about that was Boimler was his confidence. Unlike Mariners was justified. He has read everything about the Borg. He knows, you know, you can do a couple shots with the phaser as you're adjusting the phaser and then it becomes useless. Yep. His problem obviously was that he was obsessed with getting a perfect score that getting a good score, especially in a rigged game, should have been good enough. So he's showing a little bit of um, obsession, perhaps. He was definitely getting a little dark there. But it's so Boimler because he always wants to be evaluated. You know, he always wants to do well. Um, And he's come a long way from, like, singing his purging song. You know, purging, purge. When he, you know, with these, those kinds of tasks aren't going to do it for him anymore. And this was like, he is, he was so ready to take it on. And then it just wasn't good enough that he didn't do as well as he wanted to. So I thought it was beautifully in character. Except that he was so into it, he missed out the feast, at least the mid episode feast, when I thought that was a little weird where not only were they doing simulations as the captain and the ensigns um but the you know the senior bridge officers had to sleep in the hallway and (laughs) they all got to hang out in the captain's quarters i mean that like how did that you know how did they make that happen yeah um but they got to eat the cool food which was mentioned in season one that the senior officers got better replicator food yes Uh, they got pesto Right. I don't know why that's high end uh, for Starfleet, but you got to give senior officers something to look forward to, perhaps. <laughs> what did you think about the character of Sherry Yin Yem? I thought she was really good. I thought, she, I mean, I love a good throwback to the animated series, which it was. Um, and I like that she actually, you know, she reminded me of for a second was Michael Scott from the office because she came out and did good morning, good morning, Cerritos, like the way he always used to imitate Robin Williams. When he, you know, he was on a lecture tour. That was what Michael Scott did. But I liked her. I liked when she tweaked the captain's nose. She goes, or should I say Ensign? And like tweaks her nose and keeps flying her head around. Why? What did you did? Did you like her? Did you not? No, like I thought her? it was. I thought it was good. I don't know. I think the performance. I, I thought it could have been a little more something. I don't know. It was fine. It was fine. I think it could have gone up another notch. I think this was an opportunity. They did bring in Lena Perham, who's a solid actor but i was kind of hoping you know i was thinking this would have been great for someone like jane lynch yeah you know or something like that oh yeah that would have added some 
a little more edge. But no, it's fun to have another animated series race. Have you noticed this season they're doing more and more animated series callbacks? Yeah, I think so. TNG is always number one, but it almost feels like the animated series is their second go-to. And of course, Pandronians apparently fit into the the whole race only wears one outfit situation. Uh, <laughs> although I'm glad this character wasn't in Starfleet. That would have been bad, right? Because she was definitely a bad person. Right. And so you don't want that person to be in Starfleet because she was, I mean, evil's a strong word, but nefarious and a liar. And Well, petty. She was petty. But she yeah. was working for Starfleet. Yeah, she was an outside contractor, yeah. a drill drill a instructor. A consultant. Who, in the end, she wasn't fired, but she, she left due to the due stress. Due stress, of yes. Yes. It was another solid, but uh, I guess I've gotten so used to just some fantastic guest stars that I'm thinking, you know, now every episode I'm like, you know, God, who could they have gotten for yeah, this get, one? Get Meryl Streep. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did have a good guest star. They had a good throwback guest star. Yeah, they spent their guest star money on bringing in Alice Krieg as the Borg Queen. I almost feel like they wasted her because she's barely in it. No, but I thought it was a nice touch. Like, I think it's great if they can do that. That whole scene with her, yeah, it was essentially lifted out of Star Trek First Contact with Data was great. And she played the comedy well. Yeah. So Because there's that great turn in there where she thinks he's not human you know because his skin is so bad right and then he's like but i have hay fever and acid reflux so and then he teaches her empathy and beats her at chess which i wish i'd seen (laughs) (laughs) so all of this leads up to the turn in the episode when mariner and mom think that oh this is all teaching us how to understand each other as you were saying to be in each other's shoes but that wasn't the case because, you know, the instructor was essentially duping them all to prove that there was at least one ship in the fleet that sucked so that she could still keep her job. But it actually did turn out to be the case in the end. I mean, that is what it ended up achieving for them. It is. But the way they solved the problem, I thought was, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure I buy it because everything that we know about this crew and and you know the captain is they feel like they're second class and they can't get into the party and they they get the boring jobs and the way that they beat the instructor is by going to a series of insane high stress situations as if it was nothing to them as if they do it every day and you know checking out the crystalline entities getting frisky was fun and you know in the temporal black hole but which wasn't really temporal it was just a normal black hole but do we buy because there's like a moment where they cut to the mess hall and you know all the ensigns and lower deck people are just looking out the window as if it's no big deal are we buying that this crew is so jaded like the titan crew because i mean they made a big deal out the titan crew was different it's like so are we to believe that these guys think that you know dealing with these anomalies and stuff is just another Tuesday when we've been led to believe that they are not getting all the cool stuff to do. Well, so I had a different take on it because all the things that they were going to, the so-called dangerous things were things that we've seen before on 
other Star Trek shows. So those, I think they deliberately picked those things that aren't a big deal anymore because now everybody knows all about them. Like the crystalline entity was terrifying when they didn't, they'd never dealt with it before and they didn't know anything about it. And now they do. So they're like, oh yeah, so we can, you know, it's going to be scary to their drill instructor, but it's not going to be scary to them because this is something they've read all the stuff about how to deal with it and multiple ships have dealt with it before. Like, I think if they'd picked some crazy anomaly we'd never heard of, I would agree with you. But I think they on purpose chose things that they were pretending were a lot more dangerous than they were because they already were armed with the information they'd gotten from other ships. But they'd never dealt with these things before and yet they acted like it was just another day to them i don't know this is i you know i'm I'm not i love the episode it's a minor nitpick let's just say a quibble and it certainly worked and it fit everything together in the episode and it kind of tied things up neatly for sure to both resolve the problem of the story and to bring everyone together um and have that kind of bonding moment between the senior officers and the lower deckers. And yet I thought it was still so telling that like when they realize, okay, Boimler's the one who can save us all. So the captain tells Boimler like, just stay in there and don't finish it and doesn't tell him why or what, what he's supposed to do. And then Mariner says, Oh, we need you to stay in there so that the rest of our scores aren't final. She explains it to him. And when it's all over, Mariner's the one who says, Boimler, you can come out. Like they just still keep forgetting about him. (laughs) <laughs> well, but the captain says he's one of our best or something like yep, that. Yep. And I feel like she meant that, even I though Mariner so. kind of questioned it. You know, it seemed genuine, like you, that the captain has faith that if anyone could keep running a Borg simulation, it's going to be Boimler. Yes, but she still didn't tell him information that was helpful to him about why he should do what she needed him to do. That's true. That's yeah. true. So it was still up to the up to the lower deckers to look out for each other and protect each other because they just don't people don't fill each other in. And it's, you know, it's true. It's the it's the whole premise of the show was like, what happens to these people who aren't in the loop of what's going on? Right. Which the senior officers learned when they had to do some crate stacking. Nice callback. <laughs> I know that was good. And the hexagonal crates, which I've always hated. <laughs> uh, no, and. <laughs> If they wanted us to stack them, why are they shaped like this? It was so yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> and they kept on jumping in the room saying, you know, Q's here. The Klingons are here. You know, it's like, what? What? Right. Keep stacking. The officers that come to the door dressed in weird outfits. Well, there was like a Robin Hood Q related outfit for sure. That all worked. That was that was great. It's just funny because I was just I keep relating it to unrelated things unrelated to Trek. But I just heard John Stewart on the Smartless podcast saying talking. This was the phrase he said, which just caught my attention. The people generally in charge of things are at great remove from the people affected by things. <laughs> and I was like, that's exactly what goes on on the Cerritos. <laughs> yeah and we saw a lot of that in this yeah. episode yeah any other last little fun favorite moments for you um i really liked yeoman ransom let's get some fresh coffee on deck and she sends him off to get coffee which is great and then he comes back because he wasn't sure if the captain wanted cream in her coffee which made me laugh because every show i've ever seen people show up they go here i got everybody coffee and they just hand them cups 
as if everybody takes their coffee exactly the same way. So I thought that was like a little dig at almost every show that's ever had coffee in it. And I loved sending the dude to go get it. I, I enjoyed the return of Winger Bingston, <laughs> <laughs> who mentioned that he was a triple threat. So that's a nice deep cut within the show itself. Um, he's the guy who does the one man shows who got a call out earlier in the season. There's a moment where all, all the, you know, all the senior officers are complaining about something. And there's a, a middle officer who says, move it along lower decks to them. And it's the same guy who says the same line to Tendy in the opening episode. Oh, nice. When she's coming off the shuttle. I also really liked when they were sitting around talking about what an easy day they had when they're in their little bunks in the hallway. And Freeman says, I just stood in the back of a banquet all day. <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Dr. Tana says that she just waited in the, in the transporter bay in case anybody needed to be transported, which immediately reminded me of that great Chief O'Brien at work comic by John Adams. That's just Chief O'Brien waiting by himself all day. I hadn't thought about that until now, but yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. So does this firmly establish that warp me is her? <laughs> oh yeah. I noticed that too. <laughs> Cause it, I think she's, she's used it once before or have we seen her use it multiple times before? No, I, think, I, I, I don't think multiple times. So she's now focused on warp me. That's her thing. Yeah, That works. I yep. like it. I, I did like early in the episode when the USS Bakersfield was hailing them, saying that they were caught in a causality loop. <laughs> she kept hailing like, me again. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many great little moments, even like all the times that we're all in this together. And then, you know, they abandon them or, you know, we're all equals. And then Ransom goes, they sleep in the hallway. Like all the things everybody likes to say in the world of Lower Decks and in the real world out here is bullshit. Like, we're not all in it together. So we're not all equals and we're not all in it together. All in all, great episode. And the season is definitely ramping up as as we get closer. I mean, now we've only got two left. Yeah, I've been enjoying these later ones so much. I just, it's just been great. Any predictions for the last couple episodes? No, I'm not a predictions gal. You know, I'm always like, just bring me, bring me something good. That's, that's how I feel. Bring me something good. I'm really curious where they go with the finale. I feel like they're they're not going to bring Riker back. Or maybe they'll bring Riker back. I don't know. But it's like, I think they're going to do something like that, but not that. Because they already did that, right? Well, they got to do something with other Boimler at some point. Do they? I mean, they could save that, save that for season three. They could. I didn't mean it. I just mean at some point in the series. For yeah. sure. But I'm thinking they're going to do something big for the finale. Like maybe we'll see the Enterprise or probably not. But some something big's going to happen. And we still have to figure out who is behind the Packleds who really played no part in this episode. Right. But they're still out there and we still need to, you know, someone is pulling the strings. And we did learn that there's a, going to be an attack on Earth, I guess. Yeah. So that that might be the finale. Yeah. So lots of great stuff to look forward to for two more weeks. And then... We move on to Prodigy. Yeah, it's coming soon. Okay, so let's start wrapping up then. Uh, let's talk about our bits of the week. All right, what you got? Mine comes from Dr. Mohammed Noor, who was one of our guests earlier this year. 
He's a biologist and a science advisor for Star Trek. And he has a blog post talking about the second episode of the season of Lower Decks, the one with Tom Paris. We always have Tom Paris. And there's a line in that episode when Mariner is talking about how Tom used to be a salamander and Boimler has this kind of technical explanation why they became salamanders. <laughs> and what, as it turns out, the technical term he used in that was related to this practical joke. Someone, probably him, submitted a paper to a series of scientific journals as a practical joke which was all about the you know threshold as but study as if it was a real thing right and it it was submitted to these these it, this was done as an experiment to show these unethical scientific journals that will take anything if you pay them basically and there was four journals that actually published uh, this something called rapid genetic and developmental morphological change following extreme celerity and I think all the authors of the paper were Star Trek characters, were Voyager characters, right? Yes. Yeah. So this fake, yeah, I mean, it was a real paper, but it was, you know, a fake paper was submitted. And Boimler's line was basically playing off of that joke, the celerity-induced accelerated somatic mutation rate line in the episode. So that was kind of a fun little contribution of Dr. Muhammad Noor. Yeah, nice. What do you got? Mine's a little more whimsical, a little lighter in tone. So um, some people know I've been doing, when we were in Vegas, I bought an action, a talking Riker action figure. He's going to talk for you right now. Anyway, I got obsessed with taking pictures of him. I have a huge Twitter thread of just him in Vegas. I've taken him to Toronto since he's been to Brooklyn. He's been all over. And so Christine from the Trek movie team said, oh, there's another Twitter person you need to get to know. And this woman it's a german woman her name is and i'm going to try to pronounce it correctly and i hope she'll forgive me if i get it wrong Antje strauch she has a twitter account this woman is a, a an artist a craftsperson she has all these incredible scenarios she does all these star trek ones she's a big voyager fan so she has all these star trek voyager action figures and original series and she builds backdrops and sets for them she built a little bio bed from original series sick bay she puts these characters together she often puts them together in little strips with captions she did like john delancey kate mulgrew and and robert picardo when they made pizza together which people might remember for a while ago she like set up a whole thing of those three action figures like cooking pizza she's a janeway chakotay shipper so they're in all these hilarious poses and positions it's so funny and she's so artistic and the little tiny props and scenes that she lays out are incredible so i will put up a link to her twitter account and then in her profile she has a link to where she has all of her pictures but oh my god i mean it's just so funny and gorgeous like she is really talented I'm always amazed at the craftsmanship and ingenuity of Star Trek fans and the obsession, of course. <laughs> well, she also, the good thing is if you, she also loves the Orville. So she has a bunch with the Orville. She has, she does Doctor Who, Stargate, Arrow, Gotham, like a whole bunch of other ones too. So she's a fan and an artist and she really takes it to the, like, you know, I stick my Riker 
action figure in front of something and then I laugh my ass off and snap a picture. But she's building beautiful little tiny sets for hers. And it's fantastic. <laughs> Maybe you can go visit her in Germany. <laughs> she could build a set for your little Riker. I do have Star Trek friends now in Germany. So <laughs> if I do go, I will be welcomed. <laughs> so that's it for yet another episode of All Access Star Trek. Thank you all for joining us. We'll be back next Friday because if it's Friday, it's All Access Star Trek. We'll see you next time. <laughs>